Thanks for listening to the Goop Podcast, made possible by our friends at The One Atelier Fakai. Within the clean beauty space, there's been incredible innovation when it comes to high-performance luxury skincare. For years now, I've sworn by the Goop Beauty products and other clean brands, which deliver the same results or better than the conventional options. But I think hair care has been lagging behind, which is why I was curious to hear about a new clean hair care line designed in the salon of one of the world's top hairdressers, Frederick Fakai. It's called the Pure Collection from the One Atelier Fakai. Jean Godfrey June, my executive beauty editor, turned us onto the shampoo, conditioner, and mist, which we now have stocked in the Goop Shop. The Pure Collection is made with 95% natural ingredients and includes soothing ingredients like aloe vera. There are no sulfates, parabens, or silicones. And as Jean likes to say, it's no compromise because the products really work. They smell great and feel great and leave your hair looking shiny and healthy. Or you can head to theonebyfakai.com. If you're on their site, just enter code GOOP at checkout to get 20% off your purchase of the Pure Shampoo, Conditioner, or Mist. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. (laughs) Did you hear about that? (laughs) I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In the sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast. Bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations. Because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. My guest today is Ray Dalio. Ray is the founder of Bridgewater Associates, which is one of the world's largest hedge funds. He's also an incredible investor and a philanthropist. I learned so much from Ray's brilliant book, Principles, and even more from talking to him. Although Ray and I talked a lot about business, the conversation leaned more towards the emotional than you'd expect. There's a very spiritual aspect to everything Ray does. His approach to business is very different. For one, he has made a commitment to radical transparency, both personally and throughout his company, which means that everyone is encouraged, empowered, and expected to speak straight, which can be very difficult and also very rewarding, as you'll hear from Ray. You're going to be in one of two camps. You're either going to love knowing or you're going to love not knowing. If you love knowing and you're attached to knowing, it'll stand in the way of your learning, right? Because if you love not knowing... And that taking it in and the kick of learning, okay, that'll be your pleasure. Let's get to our conversation. Obviously, your book is called Principles. You clearly articulate what your principles are and how they have shaped your philosophy and, you know, have have led to your incredible success. If, if you had to design sort of the overarching principles for the country right now in terms of the direction you would want it to go in, what would those principles be? 
the most fundamental principles are the ability to think for yourself to get what you want out of life, and at the same time, work with others to understand the art of thoughtful disagreement and how to get past thoughtful disagreement to the, pursue the things that you collectively want. Because we're so at an impasse right now, and it seems so binary. And this, this is what's one of the aspects about you that I find so fascinating, is that you've developed a system of communication, it's well-documented, at Bridgewater around this kind of collaborative communication which sometimes seems like it can be quite painful and astonishing to me that somebody so successful would embody something and practice something which would constantly be inherently so diminishing to the ego. Like you told the story about, you know, someone just graduating school around your table, a a very young woman who had given you a very low score on whatever it was the topic that you were discussing. And as a boss who has spent years doing this, like how do you, how does that culturally work? How do you take feedback like that? How is it not triggering? I think there's a big lesson in that for everybody to understand. Well, first of all, I'd like to explain why it's sensible to do that, right? And then once you see that it's sensible for doing to do that, then the question is what stands in the way of doing the sensible thing? Okay, right? good. So, I need to learn this. Well, it's sensible to do that because, first of all, I don't know that ever that I'm right. So getting that feedback is important. But even as important is that she believes something that's not right, that, that, that I'm doing something badly. And... What do I want her to do? What kind of relationship do I want her to have? Do I want her to just walk off there and just be obedient and just be a follower and not wrestle with those things? I want to bring it out so that she gets empowered and that we get in sync about what's true. And if I create a culture that way where you always have the right to speak out, the right to make sense of things, and to work yourself through disagreement well, I'm going to have thinking people who will think that the system is fair and we can move forward in a better way to have an idea of meritocracy. So it's certainly a sensible thing to do it. But it's extremely rare. And do you realize how few rich, white, powerful men are capable of having that capacity of maturity and able to hold something like that? Yeah, I I know it's extremely (laughs) rare. And I know all those things are true, and, and I think it's true about a lot of groups. That of course, not, I'm just being reductive. No, also. that's okay. But I'm, that's why I say, now I want to get into the why. The well, wh- before you get into the why, I, I want to understand how, be only because it, it, it is very rare for somebody, especially in a leadership position like that, to be able to hold that kind of criticism. So how do you do that? I, I, well, first of all, I realize it's just so stupid not to do it. I mean, <laughs> the, the, the second thing is that I think that there are two U's, I, the way I, I think about it. There is the upper level U, which is the logical U, and then there's the subliminal emotional U. Right, and that's the what, animal, the mammal part. And it's subliminal, and mm-hmm. it's really what Freud's great breakthrough was the t- discovering that there's a subliminal you. Right. Okay? Mm-hmm. And the subliminal you is really controlling you, but because 
It's not conscious. You're not even aware of it. And so the issue is to reconcile those. To that most people have an emotional challenge and, and of hearing criticism. The brain interprets that like an amygdala. It's this fight or flight thing mm -hmm. that I'm being attacked. And it's reinforced so much in our education system and the way we're operating, where did you have the right answer? Are you smart? All of those things. Rather than might you be missing something important? Why should you believe that just because you have an opinion that that's a right opinion? That happens to be the one in your head. And so if somebody disagrees with you, how do you know that you're not the one who's wrong? So when you start to realize that you raise your probabilities by testing whether you're wrong, you raise your probabilities of making better decisions, right? Yeah. And that works. So there's an emotional impediment. But it only is temporary. It's habit. We are so driven by habit, right? Absolutely. Once you change your habit, everything changes. So you can change this habit. And when you create a culture in which people believe it's fair, that they demand it, and then you have to create a methodology, a, a real system that enables it, then you can achieve that. And that is the key to the exceptional results, right? I started out with a two-bedroom apartment. I'm describing, you know, low-middle-class kid, went to college, public college, and went to school and all that, and then had two-bedroom. And what, I, what we did is we had this idea meritocratic way of operating. And that's what I want to pass. From the outset. Well, yeah, it started pretty much from the outset because, first of all, if I'm having a partnership, I start off with how do I want to be with you and how should we be with each other? Everybody's got to decide how do you want to be with each other and you have to have ground rules. So I wanted an idea meritocracy. So you're going to have disagreements. And when you have disagreements, you have to have a protocol for what do you do? How do you get past that disagreement? You have to have a protocol. So I start off with that. And also... I'm living in a world where I'm never sure I'm right. And that's the power. But again, very, very incredible, an incredible degree of maturity because you could look at your career and somebody could quantifiably say, like, this guy's always right. I mean, you, you know. But you don't understand that, like, how I got right. If you right. were to look at my career, I wouldn't have been where I am or that had that track record if I didn't do this thing. So I'm trying to pass that along to other people to say, if right. you do this thing, you can have the power. When you start to realize that all the answers don't have to be in your head, okay, you can tap anything around you, right. all right? If you know how to, for example, triangulate well with people, find the smartest people who you know, maybe get, I use a triangulate, maybe it's three, who, smartest people you know, ideally those who disagree with you and understand their reasoning. And if they disagree with each other and you, and you work yourself through that, you significantly pro raise your probabilities of being right. Because you have the right to make decisions, but it's stupid not to make the decisions by taking the best that you can have and having it make sense to you, right? But how do you then determine who's right out of the three people? Well, I think that the way that I would describe it in, in a simple example would be, supposing you have some disease, what are you going to do? You could decide yourself what you're going to do, 
or you can go to three different doctors. You can go to one, then you go to the second, and he has a different opinion. Okay, this is good. Now you're going to experts, and you have a, a different opinion. Now focus in on why there's a different opinion between them. You hear the back and forth. At the end of those three, that exercise of three, you will make a decision. And the smartest way to make that decision is to believability weigh the decision. You listen to everybody, but you're going to think about who was the best expert, what did they do to make success, uh, uh, did it make sense to you, was it logical, okay, now what do I do to go ahead? If they're at odds, you focus in on that. So what we do is we have a system which we call believability weighting, believability weighting. So it, all we've done is to systemize that process. So by knowing what people are like and their strengths and weaknesses, which we collect from data and other reasons and other ways, and we do that kind of triangulation, we raise our chances of being right. It's tough to describe it in a couple of sentences, but that's basically how we do it. But the key, most importantly, is that mindset that you come to a discussion with, which views thoughtful disagreement as disagreement as a curiosity with the notion that if somebody might be wrong and it might be you and curiosity motivates that triangulation. So if you're in a situation where you've heard multiple opinions, differing opinions, and are you the tiebreaker? I want to be clear that I almost don't care about the conclusions as much as I care about the reasoning, right? But you're using... But, the, but it, it, in answer to your question about who makes the decision, there is the protocol of going through that process and watching a person make the decision, and then the person has certain decision rights. There are many decisions that I'm not the person because I'm not the best person to make that decision. It might be, I don't know, it might be a legal decision, it might be an accounting question, it might be whatever it is. My knowing what I don't know is more important than anything I know. And so by being able to put into positions those people who are the best at making those decisions, then they have a protocol, and I have a protocol, which is that protocol to watch. Everybody watches it. And by the way, it's all on video. We, we video and audio record everything so everybody can see things for themselves so that way they, don't know that they know there's no spin. And so by being able to do that, people see... Are you operating in that kind of way where you're bringing it out, you're doing the believability? I don't think there's ever been a case that I have outvoted, uh, I used my power to overcome a believability-weighted decision. Never. That's, Never. That's amazing. And when you have listened to all of the reasoning, is your, does your decision tend to be data-driven or intuitive? Both. I think you're touching on a very important subject, which we call, which is intuitive versus logical. And that has to do with what's coming from the subliminal mind and what's coming from the conscious logical mind. Those are the two U's again. And I think it's very important that realize each can be right and each could be wrong. And by reconciling them, is the best way to make a decision. So like if we have intuitive, I want to do this intuitively. It could be emotionally, or I want to do it intuitively. 
that might be a great insight because great insights come from mm-hmm. the subliminal mind in an intuitive way. And at the same time, you're at a situation where it's so smart to double check it with the logical mind. So if you can bring them into alignment, you're going to make a better decision because a lot of subliminal emotional decisions have caused a lot of pain too. So bringing them in line. I would say meditation has had an enormous effect on my approach to decision making. I started meditating in 1969. TM, right? TM. Yeah. And I think that that's had a big effect on my approach to things that I recommended to a lot of people. A lot of people, it's helped them even in our company. It's amazing too, because I think in my experience, I do TM too when I... I'm not interrupted by my children or whatever the case may be, but I think that it's an incredible tool for creating that sort of pause, you know, where the ego kind of does diminish a bit. And I think that's what you all have to put into practice when you have your, I mean, because radical transparency in practice and really speaking straight requires a kind of, you know, being able to pause and hold and not be triggered and not react and understand you're doing something for a higher exploration your tm tm gives you it gives me sort of almost the ability to go above it it's a feeling like i'm now above it and i'm looking down on me within my circumstances and then it allows me to say should how should it operate so that it works well for the whole rather than to be in it you know when you're in it and that that is where it's standing away so i'm sure if you've how long have you practiced I learned about nine years ago, okay, I'd great. say. Does it, do you agree it has that effect? Absolutely. Right. The other effect it has is it brings you into your subconscious mind because the, the meditation itself, you're, as you know, you're no longer conscious and you're no, not unconscious. So you go into your subconscious mind and in your subconscious mind, that's also where creativity comes from. So you're opening up your connection between your subconscious mind and your conscious mind, and that flow helps me, and I'm sure helps you. So when, you, when we were talking about that, that's what triggered my thought about meditation, because I was saying that reconciliation yeah, like an of the subliminal and the emotional with the intellectual is so great. And it is something, though, that it can be achieved through meditation. So I know that it allowed me to align those. So if I can align my subliminal emotion with my intellectual, and I can align that with the right triangulation with smart other people, I'm I'm about to make much better decisions than if I'm just stuck within my head. One of the most fascinating aspects of that to me when I look at sort of your larger philosophy, right, is that's so internal and so kind of hard to quantify, and it's so intimate and human. And then on the other side, you've, I imagine, created technology. Your dot collector. Dot, you've created technology to do the exact opposite in a way, sort of to take, or not the opposite, but to take that integrated human part and put it, put ones and zeros to it, and then create. A system, right, where you can read that in a scientific way. Yeah, so the the dot collector is a means by which and that everybody expresses themselves continuously through a meeting. So rather than a normal meeting in which it's all in people's heads and only one person can talk at a time, 
we have an ability by easily putting the information that we can see what everybody's thinking simultaneously. In real time? In real time. On a screen. On a screen. Okay. So everybody's knowing what everybody's thinking in real time on a screen about each other and about what's going on. What are the kind of metrics that they're using? Like, in other words, so are they rating people on quality of idea, communication? Uh, Anything, anything. Yes. Creativity, attention to detail, determination, any of those things. Or you can ask skill in their area, anything um, that they can fully express themselves in a very easy way. And then also I can communicate. Anybody who's running one of these meetings can then communicate with everybody or anyone who in the meeting wants to ask a question can ask a question to anybody and know what everybody's thinking. So you go from thoughts in the head to then that thinking. And then all that produces also data. In other words, that helps to express how people think. And it's fascinating. The data is fascinating because you see how people see differently. Right. They see differently. We don't know how people see things. You can't imagine how differently people see things at the same time unless you see it. And through this device, you see it. And then you get to why. And then you learn how you see. And so people do this also as a personal discovery process. So that it's very interesting to them to see, ah, I see things in this way, this other person sees things in that way. And that's had enormous effect on our quality of our communication. Before that, and before we did also some personality tests that helped to express how people see, people would get frustrated with each other. Mm-hmm. You know, like the big picture thinker would say, what is that person paying so much attention to the detail for? And the detail thinker would say, oh, can that person just get... Focused and granular? Right. And so, but then they start to understand. And also, by the way, all those different ways of thinking are valuable. Nature gave us everything for a reason. There's always a reason. And all those different ways of thinking have reasons. And so to be able to put together a team in which there's an appreciation of those differences so that you know in order to be successful that you need all those different ways of thinking, it's extremely powerful and, and personally beneficial. That's amazing to me. It's almost like, I don't know why I just flashed on this, but I was in Italy last summer and there's this amazing duchess and she has this garden and she doesn't spray it and she doesn't pull weeds. She says the whole ecosystem of the garden is what makes it function. Oh, that's so beautiful. It was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And it was this meandering. She doesn't plant straight because bees don't fly straight. Ah, I mean, it was just extraordinary. I'm with you with nature because nature creates this gorgeous ecosystem of the way it should be. And then people take their prejudices and they line the flowers up in a row (laughs) one bush after another in this way it's they kill they can't tolerate other opinions and they can't why do you think we're like that i don't know i think we're halfway between animal and god in the sense like in our evolution in our evolution Uh what i mean by the animal, I don't think animals have any problems with this. No, I agree. 
they just go out there and they do it and they're in harmony with nature and it's all the way it should be and they don't ask themselves questions. And we are then thinking about how things should be and so on, but we yet haven't fully evolved to being totally, you know, if you would imagine God and the all-knowing or, or fully evolved, then you would say that there would be the harmony of those things. But we wrestle with ourselves and we wrestle with nature, I yeah, think. I think that's right. I think we're, especially right now in time and space, I think we're wrestling so much with each other, with nature. Well, that's why if we could just step back from that, right, mm -hmm. and go above it and say that's our problem, right? So now how do we have the art of thoughtful disagreement so that we can get past our disagreements and go on from there. So it, it comes back to basics. Can we agree on what our most important principles are? What can we agree on? What separates ourselves? And how do we get past our disagreements to be a better whole? Because if we fragment ourselves and hurt each other, we're in the process of hurting each other then we're going to be in a pro that we're all going to be worse off. Maybe you should run for president. No, thank you. <laughs> I mean, there's a whole problem in the political system and everything, isn't there? I mean, I think maybe you should write this book, The Art of Thoughtful Disagreement. Everything I thought about that is pretty much expressed that, yeah, in principles. That's true. I did give it away as a free app. So oh. anybody who wants it can go on. It's called Principles in Action. Very interesting. So the book plus videos that take us into actually this happening is free online at the Apple App Store. So okay. it's free. Okay. I'm gonna have if to people are interested, then... I'm sure people will be interested, of course. Did you license that dot... What's it called? I'm going to make it free for everybody. Oh, dot you are. collector. Yeah. Open source. Yeah. For the whole world. I remember reading in your book... It struck me that you were so early in creating algorithms. So I think I should probably convey to your listeners this reality, because we're living in a world of algorithms and it's going to increase. And it's very important to understand. It's, it'll be a long time before any computer is going to have the imagination of a human being. Right. Okay. Human beings can imagine and they can understand in unique ways relative to a computer, but they can't process anywhere near the, what, the ability of a computer. So your brain should be used for imagining and understanding, but everything related to processing should be put into a computer. And the world that we're in is decision-making is going to be totally different. Think about it. In, in the world that we're used to, if we're playing chess, the way for me to play chess is I make a move and you make a move and we make that in our that decision-making in that way. In the future, the right way to play chess is to make a decision-making criteria for those moves and embedding it into a computer. <laughs> and then in parallel use that computer in parallel with us to make the decisions. And when you do that, you create so much empowering and you don't lose understanding. Mm -hmm. 
you gain understanding and you gain imagination. So that's what I found very powerful. I described that in the beginning you asked me about this way of operating and this idea of meritocratic way of being. That has been absolutely critical. And meditation, I would say, absolutely critical. The other thing I would say is if I could convey a message, it would be to know your principles Principles and systematic decision-making. So if you write down what are your principles, what are the best decision rules when faced in situations, it will help you so much Mm. because the same things happen over and over again. So how should we deal with each other? What are our principles for doing that? Each one of the, the things, what are our principles for making decisions? It'll change the way you think. Because rather than seeing a bunch of things that are coming at you, you'll almost see it as different species of things that are coming at you. In other words, you'll say, oh, it's another one of those. And like, what species is it? And how do I best handle that species? So the pr- operating at a principle level, together with operating, it, you, systematic decision-making is, is, is really something. And if I'd say any success that I've had in life has been because of that, and I guess also knowing that how one deals with one's not knowing is so much more important than anything one knows. I think that's true. And it's also true. I mean, for me anyway, I started this business. I had no idea what I was doing and 10 years ago. And well, I started monetizing it about five years ago. And I had a real embarrassment around my ignorance around certain things, especially certain acronyms, or there was so much to learn and there was so much I didn't know. And at a certain point, you know, instead of trying to Google, like, what is a SaaS business under the table or whatever I was trying to do, to just embrace the vulnerability and say, I don't know the answer to this. It doesn't mean that I'm not intelligent. It just means I'm ignorant for right now and I can learn this. I use the expression, I'm a dumb shit. Uh, (laughs) Because what I find is, if if, okay, let me establish the fact that I'm a dumb shit. Now, can we go on from there? Therefore, if we establish the fact that I'm a dumb shit, then we get past this view that, uh, okay, you're judging me based on I know and I'm defending. Okay. No, let me just, I'm a dumb shit. Can I answer the question? You just adopt the posture of I'm a dumb shit. I love that. That's sort of what I had to do. And that's why you see the ego barrier is such a bad thing, right? right? Yes. It's very powerful and very negative. Because you're going to be in one of two camps. You're either going to love knowing or you're going to love not knowing. If you love knowing and you're attached to knowing, it'll stand in the way of your learning, right? Because if you love not knowing and that taking it in and the kick of learning, okay, that'll be your pleasure. Yeah, don't be attached to the knowing. That's brilliant, though. You know, that's really, it's very, very profound. Do you, would you consider that one of your principles? I I mean, I know you have your sort of main ones that you've articulated, but are there other principles like that? Those are kind of, you know, if I was to say overarching, those are them. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. 
CarbonX is an environmental company that aims to empower people to make a positive impact on the planet. They've created a simple platform to help you make up for your carbon emissions by supporting climate-friendly projects. You can earn shareable badges based on how long you've been offsetting, and your subscription will go towards supporting new initiatives and carbon offsetting projects that have been independently verified to have removed CO2 from the atmosphere. You can choose a project that is meaningful to you, such as planting trees in deforested regions of the Amazon and investing in energy-efficient and renewable resources around the world. For the Goop podcast team, CarbonX wanted to cover our team's carbon footprint. They donated a subscription for us to support an energy-efficient cook stoves program in Uganda. To learn more about CarbonX, head to their website at carbonx.com. That's carbon with a K-X.com or download the CarbonX app. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. And now let's take a short break. The Pure Collection from the One Atelier Fakai is a pick from our executive beauty editor, Jean Godfrey June. The brains behind this line is Frederick Fakai, the world-famous hairstylist who pioneered luxury hair care two decades ago. And now he has his first collection of luxury, clean hair care. As Jean puts it, Frederick has been working with hair for decades in his salons and workshops known as Atelier Fakai. Because of this, he's tried everything and he only uses products that deliver great results. He also happens to be from Provence, and according to Jean, he's the OG source for French girl hair. And he's always loved and believed in the power of nature and botanicals. After a lot of research and testing, Frederick came up with the Pure Collection, which stands out because it's entirely clean. This is why you'll find the shampoo, conditioner, and mist from the Pure Collection in the Goop Shop. The line is made with 95% natural ingredients, like soothing aloe vera. There are no sulfates, parabens, or silicones. And the products actually work, they are extremely high performance, and they smell great. And they leave your hair looking great. You can find the Pure Collection in the Goop Shop, or you can head to the one by Fakai.com. If you're on their site, just enter code GOOP at checkout to get 20% off your purchase of the Pure Shampoo, Conditioner, or Mist. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Do you think that we, part of the process of life is defining your own principles? Is it? Yeah. Okay, so it's not, there, it's not a, there are no common denominators and principles for every single person. No, however, let's say there are timeless and universal truths and very good principles that people who, do anything successfully have, and you want to understand them. You don't want to be possessive. You don't have to invent all the principles in the world. You can take them from others and embrace them. We all learn. Like if, I don't know, somebody's a great skier, somebody's a great parent, somebody's a great whatever they are, you want to glean them from others and also think for yourself. But at the end of the day, that you have to internalize them and say that they are whatever, wherever they come from, from you or wherever they come from, you have to find the things that work. Do you think that there are certain principles that are axioms for all high-achieving, successful people? 
I think that there are a lot of commonalities. I'm not sure that you can get back to everyone. What I did was I gave tests, I gave personality profiles to shapers. What's that? What's a shaper? Bill Gates, Elon Musk. People who went from visualization to actualization. In other words, somebody who's, uh, I visualized something and built out something great. Right. right. And so when I think about, well, what are the different approaches? I decided to, you know, I know a number of shapers. Right. And you gave them a personality test. Yeah. And then talked to them and to try to find, okay, what is it that are the common ingredients to make them extraordinarily successful? The, the vision and the building it out. And so when you ask me that question, that's what comes to mind. And what did you find? Well, there's there's just a a whole bunch of them, but they're adventurous, curious, but adventurous. They like going into the unknown. They're imaginative. So it's like risk tolerance. They view risk differently than you might view risk or different people view risk. That's a word. They risk having their life be less great than it could be. Right. That's risk. Okay. Risk, somebody else might say, I risk failing. I risk embarrassing myself. Okay. They risk not doing all they can do and being all that they can be. They don't mind falling. They don't, they view that as part of the process. Like the Thomas Edison approach. Yeah. Fail fast and fails forward. That's the idea. So what is risk? The ability to be full range or to work with people who are full range because to be aspirational, imaginative, and at the same time be down into the nitty-gritty detail and execution. They are practical and dreamers at the same time. You can't be just a dreamer and you have to be that practical. They love the evolutionary process. Oh, and one thing that's controversial is that they hold people accountable for a high standard. Um, why is that controversial? Well, I'll, I'll tell you why, why it's controversial. On the personality test, there's a, a, a part of the test that is called workplace inventory. This is one of the tests. And on it, there's a test, that, a status that called concern for others. And it sounds like... It's empathy, concern for others. But I gave it to Mohammed Yunus, who received the Nobel Peace Prize for microfinance and all of, he received the Congressional Medal of Honor, all these awards for what he has given to humanity. A man who thinks nothing about himself relative to others. I gave it to Jeffrey Canada, Harlem Children's Zone, who operates in, in these people who are very self-sacrificing and have high concern for others. But what happens is when they get, here's what it is. When faced with the choice of hurting somebody's feelings or achieving the mission, they will put achieving the mission first. So they'll be tough on others. need to get better at that. It's a big deal. Right? When you start to realize that there are emotional barriers. Yes. And that people's personal evolution, it's what I call tough love. Because it can also be the way way that you can deliver something 
can, I mean, it's, it's in the way as well, right? Like you can deliver something very tough, but in a loving way. That's right. That's why I say if it's, if it's tough love, but still tough love is so much tougher than easy love. I know. But, but it's good for us. You know, it's the thing about nature. One of the great tricks of nature is that the first order consequences are opposite the second order consequences, meaning the thing, it's almost like nature plays a trick on us, I think. Like the foods that we most want to eat or the things that we most want to do that are most appealing are often the worst for us. It's almost, there's a negative correlation. The second order like consequence. Like French fries and martinis? <laughs> right. Like, Damn it. Right. I do love, that's, that's me at a bar. That's I, me. French fries <laughs> and martinis. I like dirty martinis. <laughs> okay. With that olive juice and those oh, ol- plump so olives. Good. But that second order consequence, so it's the trick. So you have to get, almost go to the pain. And almost pain can be made pleasure. When you start to realize, like playing an exercise with habit becomes the pleasure. That's so interesting. So you think that's applicable to a difficult interpersonal dynamic? Well, that's why it's tough love. How do I, how does one get better at that? Well, I, I think first of all, we have to, we intellectually have to agree that that's true. You have to intellectually believe something. Then you have to see that it's your upper level you in conflict right. with your lower level emotional you and that other people are having the challenge. And then you have to have the technique. And the technique we talk about goes back to starting with the higher level and saying, how should we be with each other? Like, do you want me to tell you what I think? Do you I say think? that out I loud? Do. I say something similar. I say, like, do I have permission to speak straight? Right. That's very helpful. In right. other words, it's important that we're in sync. Right. I think these things, what do you want me to do? What do you think we should do here? Because that brings you above the situation so that you're d- going about how we should be with each other. Because intellectually, then you'll... The person will say, of course, I should know. No, what? I should walk out it here ignorant about that thing? No, but the brilliance about posing it or framing it that way is that what you're inherently saying to the higher level self of the person is, I need you to come forward. Like, I need your highest self to come forward. That's and right. When they hear that, right, like, can we agree on that we're going to have this tough discussion? It's like that immediately cues you to bring your highest self forward. That, that, that's why when I was saying earlier, when each person realized they have two yous. Right. The faster you realize that. If, because then you start to see, oh, it's my lower level me. If you start to realize it's your lower level you, then you don't think you want because you realize the upper level you might want one thing and your lower level you might want something else. So then you have to think upper level you, what do you want? Do you want to talk about this or what should I do in this position? But that's a great question. It's so human. What should I do about the fact that we're in this predicament and essentially it's your fault? (laughs) Well, I don't know whose fault it is. Let's talk. Right. But that's... Let's, Let's talk. Right. That's amazing. And how do you then conclude, if, if you never quite know what the truth is or who's right, how do you come to the conclusion that somebody's not the right person for the business anymore? Well, it goes back to what I was saying before. 
you have certain decision rights, and then how do you triangulate with others to get to the most believable decision? So if somebody's working with you, you have a job, they have a job. Okay, they report to you. That's your situation. So put you in your situation. Now you're in the situation that you described as a difficult situation, which is a difficult situation for most people. So then you say, listen, it is my responsibility to run this company and to do the best that I can along those lines. And I have thoughts, and there should be no questioning that I that we should be having this conversation and dealing with this, right? And you, you describe that to the person. And then I like to do it in a way where if I need to, that there's triangulation where, okay, well, you know, how do you achieve it? But in any case, to not have that conversation would be bad for everyone, right? Yes. And you make that clear and they go, yes, with equal enthusiasm. Okay. And then you have it. If I had one last question, okay, I'll ask you something really stupid and rudimentary. For my son's 13th birthday, I opened a electronic trading account for him. He's very interested. Great. <laughs> he's very interested in the stock market. Great. So, so how can I encourage him? to create principles for himself around this and what are what would you tell him like if i if if he were here he's a, he's going to make his first trade what should he do well i by the way i i did the same thing at 12 i took my caddying money and my, the money i earned and i did the same thing oh yeah northeast yeah northeast, northeast airlines yeah, oh yeah I you remember it from the book yeah so i relate to it very well so most importantly Go into it with the fun, the adventure, and so on. Try not to get blown out and use curiosity as your guide to how you should do better. In other words, start to probably online, you go to different places and, and gather information and think. Realize Boy, I wish I could speak with him. Maybe maybe I will do that. Please. That the markets are based on what everybody's bet is of what's likely to happen, and it becomes discounted in the markets. Maybe this is too technical. No, no. But if it's a great company, a great company may do worse than a terrible company because it's like a great horse in a horse race doing worse than a bad horse in a in the horse <laughs> race because the betting odds change so the that horse has got to do better than the betting and that or versus if that worse horse did better than is expected they would do well and the markets are like that but anyway that's a detail i would say go in have the adventure Think about up and down, betting, will something go down? You could do well if it's something goes down because you could learn how to sell short as well as to bet on things going up. And just play. And play and ask down? questions. Pay, play and ask questions. Thank you so much. This has been so incredibly enlightening. It's been fun for me too. Thanks for listening to my chat with Ray Dalio. I loved getting to explore how his principles have shaped his philosophy and ultimately led to such success. Make sure to check out Ray's book, Principles, and you can also download his app, Principles in Action, for free on iTunes. 
That's a wrap on today's episode. If you have a second, please rate, review, and hit subscribe if you haven't already. Don't forget to share the Goop podcast with a friend. And I hope you'll come back next week on Tuesday and Thursday. My chief content officer, Elise Lunin, is interviewing a couple more brilliant guests. Don't miss it. And in the meantime, for more, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.